2: You get stuffed with ravioli.
0: If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great.
2: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, wishing everybody a happy 4th of July weekend. It is now Monday july 6th and we hope everybody out there had a wonderful fourth of july holiday got some good time with friends and family under the circumstances we are back today with uh my partner in crime the notorious pob pat o'boyle and rosella rago has joined us once again after a few weeks uh, absent from the show so ro first of all welcome back
0: thanks guys good to be back yeah we missed you I missed all of you. Patrick, I missed this voice uh, on the other end somewhere. Somewhere <laughs> in New Jersey. Do you report live from the bunker? Are
2: you still <laughs> yeah. in the
1: bunker? Yes, I am still in the bunker. I have not left the house.
0: Have you uh, shaved?
1: Absolutely. And pre shaved. Oh. Well, I, I, bro, I am not living like an animal. I, live like I, I
0: imagine you like looking like the Unabomber right ah.
1: now. No, absolutely not. Because you know what? If I drop dead in this house, I'll leave this house like a gentleman. But I am not. Some kind of, what are you I, doing I know, for I,
2: haircut though?
1: I don't. i my hair grow long in a colonial fashion. I decide I'm going to wear like Jefferson <laughs> in the back. Wow. Listen, other people do not have long hair. They they're kind of having like a rough kind of uh, long hair. I think that.
0: Do you have a mullet?
1: No. I'm going to have it with the ponytail in the back of the family fathers. That's why I came to announce on Fourth of July. <laughs> I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy a tricorn hat. <laughs> with the whole outfit. I'm going to walk around, and the hair is going to match the outfit. Wow. No, but I'm serious. People out there think I'm laughing. I'm totally serious about this.
2: <laughs> no, I, know I was you, gonna I get know you are. I was gonna
1: get a colonial outfit made. So this way when I do go out I can get a horse and ride a Ucavala and have the I'll have a two Sicilies. I'll have the Constantinian <laughs> uniform done as it as it would have been worn in seventeen seventy six.
2: I could see you like walking around being the Italian character in like Colonial Williamsburg. In Neapolitan.
0: I think Pat was born in the the (laughs) wrongest century ever. You're right for his personality. I mean, he would have he would have done well in like French court. He would have really been able to spread his wings, like in uh in the Baroque eras. And and
2: (laughs) I tell him all the time, if he was born back in you know 1770s instead of the 1970s, he would have been a high courtier. In Caserta with the Bourbons, I mean, he would have been perfect. He would have been like the prime minister.
0: Bourbons
1: would have been an empire. The British would have been <laughs> nothing.
0: He would have written letters like Leopold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have had all the all the courtiers yeah, in love with him.
1: Or I could have been a corrupt Renaissance cardinal. You <laughs> would have been a great corrupt cardinal. I would have been like Cardinal Richelieu. Oh, or- yeah. yeah, the uniforms. Yeah. I could have been like a prime minister. You know, back in the old days, you didn't have to be a priest to be a cardinal. No one realizes. Yeah. That only happened in this century. Previously, you could be a lay cardinal if you were in the political administration of the papal state.
2: So you would have been a lay cardinal. That would have yeah. been your... yeah. All
1: they had to do was give you... I have a little bald spot in the back, which would have been fine, because they used to give you a little haircuts to give you a The Greeks <laughs> do it the same thing as a tonsure, So they would have a little bit of hair on your back. As soon as they cook the hair on the top of your head, you become a cleric. And then you could be married, you have all that stuff, and you're still a lay cardinal. Only in the 20th century were cardinals required to be priests. So I would add all the different outfits, and do you know they had a cardinal riding outfit? They had a (laughs) cardinal, no they did. You know like the knee britches that the Colonials wore? Yeah. The cardinals had their own version. They only wore the long red cassock and the choir habit when they were doing official stuff. Even priests wore knee britches, like when they went out about town and stuff like that. Wow. some reason you people listen to this, and I don't understand why. (laughs)
2: It's because my editing prowess. Because my family, my family
1: thinks it's so Like, Why do they listen to you? For some reason, you listen.
2: You could do your own show like the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey, where you just talk about something random for 20 minutes. and It's, that, I don't, it's not
1: random. It's the missing pieces that people don't know.
2: You're right. That's true. Let's talk about missing pieces. It's perfectly appropriate because today we are here to talk about the Italians at the founding of this country in celebration of July 4th, because... You know, some of this we covered in our history of northern Italy a little bit. Some of it we covered in our four-part history of Italian-American experience. But I always talked about, and I think I've said it on the air before, how growing up I really felt like the American Revolution and everything pre-Great Migration was kind of American history that was before me. I didn't have a belonging to it because I didn't know about any Italian presence there. I never learned about any Italian presence there. And I think what we'd like to accomplish today is to kind of say – in celebration of the 4th of July, and, you know, at a time when I think our country is examining our history, there is something to be said about the Italians that were present, and there's some fascinating history there. So I hope that we can share with our audience today some of the unsung participants uh, at the founding of this country who were, in fact, the earliest Italian-Americans. And I think it's safe to say that the most prominent one is probably Filippo who He went by Philip when he lived here. And he's a character that's really fascinated me over the years that I've gotten to study him, particularly when I was living in Washington, because I think the most important thing we can talk about in terms of Italian-American contributions to the revolution is the fact that it was Madzei's writings and his correspondence with Jefferson, a very dear friend of his, which we'll get to as we share his life, because you know Jefferson built this line, all men are created equal, into the Declaration, but Madzei wrote... All men by nature, equally free and independent. Such equality is necessary in order to create a free government. All men must be equal to each other in natural laws. There's not many sentences that can compete with that one in terms of importance to America and and to what the American story means. So I was very proud to find out that there was an Italian at the root of that. You guys didn't really learn much about Matze too early on either, right?
0: No way. I don't remember learning about him in school at all. I'll tell you
1: my first cognizance of Matze.
2: My grandmother's brother used to cut stamps out
1: for me as a kid. And he would send me, when he found things of interest, he would cut them out and mail them to me. And I still have, he mailed me the 1980 stamp of Fleeful Not Say that came out in the United States. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Fleeful Not Say
2: was that stamp. Do you remember that? I remember seeing it, yeah. It's, it came out before I was born, but I've seen it. I think one of the big negatives of the email world is we don't
1: have those stamps. anymore. <laughs> it's true. Because yeah. I think those stamps – well, they really did educate people. Commemorative stamps educated people. You would get a stamp and say, oh, wow, this is really interesting looking. And they'd say, okay, 250th birthday of people Fruipo Masei. Now, back then, you had to go to the encyclopedia and pull the encyclopedia off the shelf and find out who Fruipo Masei was. But I think that – I guess it kind of – for the younger listeners, it's kind of like with the Google, how Google changes its um, – <laughs> what do you call it? That Google, like when you're going to search yeah, the, the Google? The,
2: the Google Doodle, it's called. The, the yeah, image. the Google
1: Doodle. The commemorative stamps were the old Google Doodle. Yeah, you're right. That's well, well said. And um, this is my feeling about Matse and I've been trying to think about this, how to put this correctly. We lived in, for better or for worse, a high geographical concept of American history, where there was a good guy and a bad guy. And there was a right, and there was a wrong. And the right was the American Patriots were correct, and the British Empire was wrong, and the British system was tyrannical and intrinsically evil. And these saintly, godly prophets of the American Revolution attacked an intrinsically disordered and evil British Empire, and they made the world basically safe for democracy. Right? I feel that the real question was the concept of a non-hereditary leadership. So if you take the British court or the French court, the Spanish court at that time, it was leadership based on primogeniture. So the oldest son basically ran the country. You know, I think it was Thomas Paine who said, you know, would you pick a doctor based on being the son of a really good doctor? You know, is that what qualifies you to be a great doctor? Or is it from your your innate talent and skill? And how I turned into Matzai is I think that there were a lot of people in Europe, well-educated people of privilege, either economic privilege or titled, who were watching the American Revolution, who were secretly rooting for it, kind of amazed that this was happening. So I think that there were all these guys sitting on the sidelines, kind of quietly rooting for revolution, and Matzai is one of them. And they're using the United States as a petri dish for their own theories, their own worldview, which they can't play out in. No, I think you're right. If he tried to do this in Tuscany, he would have wound up, you know, in jail at best. You know, but Tuscany had already gotten rid of the death penalty. Tuscany is the first country in the world to. to, to um, and It's right around this time that Tuscany abolished the death penalty, so he wouldn't have faced death, but he very well could have faced the life in prison.
2: It's interesting, Matzei, To me, you know, the more you study him the more he does become an active figure in the revolution in so many ways. So let me give a little bit of background for the audience because he's probably a new figure to a lot of people and there's not really much out there. It's funny, we worked really hard to see if we could bring a Matzei scholar on to the show today to do this with us, but we could not find anybody alive who was a verifiable expert on Matzei. And Stephanie reached out to... Everyone from Monticello, the home of Jefferson, to Colonial Williamsburg, see if there were experts on their staffs, and uh, nobody had one. Everybody kind of kept referring us in circles. So it was really interesting to me. So uh, first of all, thanks to Stephanie for the great research to pad out what we did know. Um, Matzei was born in a town called Poggino Icaiano, which is near Prato, interesting little city in Tuscany. He was born on Christmas in 1730. He was a physician a winemaker and an arms dealer and studied medicine in Florence and then traveled and practiced his medicine in in both Italy and the Middle East for many, many years before he ended up in London in 1755 to take on a career as a merchant and importer and teacher of the Italian language. And it was in London that he met Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. And it was Adams who introduced him eventually to Thomas Jefferson. And he comes over to the United States in 1773 and he brings... Plants seeds, silkworms, and a whole cadre of Tuscan Italians with him. He brings a tailor, he brings farmers, so he sort of brings a little Italian immigrant colony with him.
0: Well, we always have to travel in an entourage.
2: <laughs> yes, we do. Of course, I'm sure. I'm sure they had the c- container of espresso with them, and you know, pepper and egg sandwiches wrapped up for the journey.
0: I mean, you can't go anywhere without your tailor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right. It's very Italian, isn't it? Yeah, I must look the part he probably knew there was no way the British colonies were going to maintain Italian lines and fashion when he got here. Uh, so he gets here and he's supposed to settle these plots in Southern Virginia. And he goes to visit Jefferson, who's been corresponding with for many years. And Jefferson basically says to him, why don't you just take some of my plantation here and settle that? So he does. He takes a portion of Monticello and, it, and turns it into a little farm of his own called Le Cole, the, the hills. And it's there that he actually introduces Tuscan grapes and wine culture, really, for the first time to the United States. And-
0: Hold the phone. We have this guy to thank for, like, good wine being in America?
1: Yeah. No, that's not correct. No, it's not correct. No. Okay, because I'm sorry. Why not? Because we see that when Matzei was in Virginia, he was part of the contiguous 13 colonies that were part of British North America. Prior to 1776, California wine culture was started by the Spanish. So Spain grew olives and grapes in California, and then the Italians came and really ran with it. But before Prohibition, the number one wine producing state in the United States was Missouri. Because the Germans, the Bavarians in Missouri, grew German wine varietals like uh, what's the... the Riesling. Yeah, Riesling-type production. Oh, that's too sweet. Nobody likes (laughs) Riesling.
2: And they grow it in Texas. Of course they do. But
1: but what I'm saying is that, you know I got a lot of... Yeah, but wait a minute,
2: though. But wait a minute. Let's be fair to Metze, though. That was territory that would eventually become the United States. But for the social consciousness of the United States, as the nation grows, the first vines and wine produced domestically here in the United States is Virginia wine that he planted. No, because my thing is that when the United States conquered the West
1: and the Mexican-American War, we did not arrive in a place where there was nothing. There was something already there. Sure, yeah. So what are the two layers of what was there? The first layer was the indigenous people who were the American Ind- I guess the, the colloquial term is American Indians. So you have the indigenous population. And then the second tier, you had the remnants or the, the actual culture of colonial Spain. Which only I mean, remember, there's only about 27 years between Mexico's independence from Spain and America taking over those territories. And my argument always is: for instance, I'll tell you why I get so married to this issue. You know I have a thing for blue vestments, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. And what do I mean by blue vestments? The outfit that a priest wear when he says mass, the chassis. And all the former colonies of Spain, countries that were controlled by Spain, have the privilege of blue vestments. And Spain asked to have that recognized, that they would be allowed to wear blue vestments on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is a privilege that's held in some places just for shrines dedicated to Mary Marian shrines, but they asked for this. The Philippines wears blue vestments on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, because the Philippines had been a Spanish colony to 1898. Belgium and Holland, when they were the low countries, they were controlled by Spain. They get to wear blue vestments on the Immaculate Conception. Monasteries in England. Their, their origins came from Belgium and Holland when it was controlled by the Spanish to wear blue vestments. But the Irish bishops in the US in 1848, they abolished all these Mexican privileges because they said, ah, oh, we don't need these Spanish privileges. This is the USA. And they overwrote all that Spanish colonial history, for good or for bad, but they kind of acted like 1848 was year zero. And I feel a lot of that comes from a white Anglo Saxon Protestant vision of America where. They don't factor in the fact that California had its own culture. We amalgamated, right? We amalgamated countries change, words, change, sure. we amalgamated.
2: We incorporated French territory, we incorporated Russian territory. Yeah. Sure.
1: So what I'm saying is that Matze is the father of wine in the contiguous 13 colonies of the American Revolution. It's not the whole crunch because it was a disaster. It didn't work out. You go to buy wine in Virginia now, it's a novelty product. It's not California. It's not, it's it's a it's a no, novelty. Of course, wine, yeah. Right.
2: Well, you can still buy the wines that are grown from his vine.
1: Sure, but they, they're novelty products. They are not commercial products. And it's it's nothing against Virginia wine. I'm not a sommelier, right? And I'm gonna tell you why I go all berserker over this. <laughs> Jefferson never wrote nice stuff about people. I like John Adams, right? They kind of hated each other, right? They had a love-hate relationship, they were best friends, turned enemies. They both died July 4th, 1826. May the rest in peace. The anniversary is coming upon us
2: tomorrow. They
0: both died on the same day?
2: Yeah. On the 50th right. anniversary of the Declaration yes. of Independence. Yes. Yeah, yes. amazingly enough.
0: They died on my birthday? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's crazy.
2: Yes.
1: And I think Jefferson's... Wasn't Jefferson's last words, Adam lives?
2: No, Adam said at least Jefferson survives.
1: Yeah, something. And, and the yeah. reason I bring it up is... He definitely was an Italian. <laughs> That's absolutely no, right. I, I, I like Adams. Adams, um... People seem that he was cranky and difficult, but he was a principled guy. I often see him as a difficult guy who kind of knew how to do the right thing. A guy you could hate, but love to hate. A guy you respected for his honesty and his character, right? An honest an honest guy, a principled
2: guy. I can't for the life of me understand how you could relate to a cranky guy who's principled in his opinions and doesn't mind telling you. That's
1: my take. I know this is the stuff that drives me berserk, but what can I say? <laughs> I am
2: who I am. You know,
1: go listen to something else. Is that a happy podcast? A happy <laughs> I often see Jefferson as kind of like a little snooty. He played really dirty with John Adams in the campaign, in the in the eighteen was it the eighteen hundred person? was it eighteen hundred person campaign? And I think that Jefferson was buddy buddy with Montsé, but he wrote a lot of nasty stuff behind. He kind of got like gossiped about him behind his back. If you go through the letters, he writes to Madison, oh gee, he's coming. Here comes my headache. So he's the <laughs> lovey dovey, hug you, kiss you, and then when the guy's not in the room, he kind of mouths. That's why maybe I get very kind of like. Touchy, putting another crown on. I, I'm more, I'm an Adams guy, I'm not a Jefferson.
2: All right, that's fair enough. But I still think it's amazing that no matter what the first vines in this country are, you can still drink wine from the roots that this guy brought from Tuscany in 1773. And even beyond the fact that this is a tangible piece of Italian-American history that you have access to, I also think it's really incredible because when the phylloxera outbreak, these uh, vine-eating bugs— hits Europe in the 1880s and 90s, almost wipes out the entire French wine industry. Somebody picks up on the fact that you can actually graft these heirloom French vines onto these American roots that he's created all 100 years ago. And and, and these varietals will survive in this grafting. So he, my mind, not only introduces an industry here, but actually saves European winemaking. So I, I just think it's an amazing ripple of history.
1: I, I'm kind of go off more. Like I don't know why. Why do you put me on a podcast with history? You drop a nickel in me. Then you'll start rolling your eyes, and I just go on and on. Like, didn't you understand this before you – why would you do this?
2: Because I learned how to edit.
1: This is like throwing – <laughs> giving me this is like putting kerosene in a kiddie pool and then dropping a match. <laughs> oh, a, a, gee, I wonder why this fire in the kiddie pool. Uh, to get back to my Matzei <laughs> criticism is that the upper middle class, the aristocracy, the nobility, to get back to the American Revolution, a lot of them sat on the sidelines, and a lot of them in France, right? A lot of them are rooting for the American Revolution in France, and they're the same people who are rooting for the overthrow of their own king, Louis the 16th. I've said a lot of times, and remember, I'm Irish, George III, as far as kings went, we could have done a heck of a lot worse. We were the freest people in the whole world on the eve of the American Revolution. We had more freedom here than anybody else had. And a big part of why England was collecting taxes on us was that we kind of stirred up the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. And England gets itself in mega-debt, because we were part of the agitation, the American colonists, in the French and Indian War. So we run up a bill. George has to pay off the bill. We don't want to pay off the bill. We want to do our own thing. And a lot of these Europeans stand by. But I, this is a big theory I talk about all the time, is the fact that is the United States, we had a bloody revolution in the sense that we had military engagements with the army of the British Empire, right? But we didn't do stuff like chop off the heads of world government. Our la Francais, okay? And the big reason why we didn't have a violent overthrow type of revolution like France did was that we had a, a strong parliamentarian system in Britain that trickles down to the United States and we had colonial legislatures. We had a lot of home rule. So what happened to the American Revolution? We take down the picture of King George III. We put a picture of George Washington. So we go from being the province of New Jersey to the state of New Jersey, but nothing else changed. We went from having an appointed world governor to an elected state governor. But all the mechanisms were there. France, the States General hadn't met for almost 200 years. The French Parliament had not met for almost 200 years. So when they get together and Louis XVI is deep in debt over the American Revolution, they did not have a democratic tradition in France that the French, after removing the king, were able to rule themselves. And that's why they went guillotine happy. Now you're asking, why am I bringing this up with Matzei? Because people like Matzei, Used America as a political petri dish. All these social experimenters, like Matzei were part of the cause of the unleashment of the French Revolution. So the second chapter of the American Revolution is the French Revolution. And I, I don't, I don't think I wouldn't be celebrating Bastille Day. Sure, should we celebrate Fourth of July yet? Yeah. But there's good and bad in all of this. It's the political implications of the American Revolution. So what I'm trying to say is, if we're going to talk about the contribution. Of people like Matsei, it's a nuanced conversation. So what I'm saying is that we he was able to see a social experiment of some of his concepts in the United States and it worked out. We had a few hiccups. We really kind of had a transition that didn't have a lot of bumps in the road. But the French Revolution did have a lot of bumps in the road, and it didn't happen in Tuscany.
2: I understand your point. I mean, the American Revolution is definitely a petri dish for European quote-unquote, enlightenment ideas around governance, around the republic, around liberty. But Matzai, when he's when he gets here, right, beyond the contribution to wine production, beyond his friendship with Jefferson, you know, he's an active agent for the United States overseas. He's a massive fundraiser for the United States and actually pays for a considerable amount of the arms that go into the revolution. And like we say in the beginning, his philosophical ideas on all men being created equal are at the heart of the most important paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. Now, whether or not his actions were taking advantage of the fact that the political climate existed here that didn't exist as he probably would have liked to have seen it in the Grand Duchy of Tuscany or any of these guys that came over, I mean, I think that the point that I really tried to make is that the thing that bothers me about the retelling of the American Revolution is that it's it's very linear and heavily biased towards this split from Britain by this very British population. But in truth, there's a lot of foreign agents who participate. You know, there's there's German, Steuben, there's Polish, Kosciuszko, there's Lafayette. Kosciuszko? The
1: you mean Kosciuszko?
2: Kosciuszko, yeah. Kosciuszko is how we say the bridge in Brooklyn, n- <laughs> n- named in his honor. Uh, so you have all these foreign contributions, and I think the Italian one gets overlooked. So Mazzei, so to me... Uh, beyond the actual contributions of money and energy and arms to the conflict, I think the most important thing is his contribution to the Declaration of Independence and the founding spirit of the country. And, you know, when you dig deeper beyond him, there's a lot of Italian philosophers that these revolutionaries that become our founding fathers are referencing. I mean, you know, Ben Franklin takes huge swaths of his political theory from Gaetano Filangieri, the Neapolitan a jurist, philosopher, economic theorist. He wrote The Science of Legislation. You know, th- these works by Italians in the pre-unitary states directly influence the American political thinking, the layout of Washington, D.C., the idea of returning to a Roman Republican route. You know, that that's that's Italy. That, that's part of our history as well. So uh, I think the more you dig beyond the kind of, you know, it started at Lexington and Concord and it concluded at, Yorktown version of the American Revolution, the more you see Italian fingerprints on it. And that's really important to me because as an Italian-American, it gives me a sense of belonging that I never had. I don't agree with that.
1: I want to tell you why I don't agree with that. I'm, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in this one. I do agree that Matsays earned his place on the postage stamp, being the voice that spoke to Thomas Jefferson of all men being created equal. Because that is a revolutionary term yeah. in the medieval world, right? If you go back to the English legal system in the medieval times, they would weigh testimony based on who you are. So if the Duke of such and such or a, a wealthy um, businessman said, you know, I saw Tom steal the apple, it would take like 10 peasants for their weight of their testimony to say, no, I saw Robert steal the apple. There was an intrinsic system that some people had more value than others, and that's kind of the seedlings of slavery too, or in, indentured servitude, or serf, uh, serf uh, serfdom or any, anything else. It, it's it's based on the fact that there are people who work more than others, right? Yeah. And I think in Europe, Europe is still very much a class society, right? Yeah. Be it based on money or family, or like I say all the time, you know, you could have a lot of money in Europe, but you still can't join the club, right? Right. So, might say one hundred percent, I would say earns his place because that is a revolutionary concept that takes root in the American Revolution and it spreads around the world. And it's one of the things that the world really admires in us in in a conceptual sense. You might say that's true or not true in America, or it's true in a degree or it becomes truer over time. But it's something that we champion as a country. That alone puts us in the history world. Did Mazzei really identify as an Italian or did he identify as a Tuscan?
2: Yeah, but that, but that's not fair. I mean, th- th- there is no Italy at that point, right? So, sure,
1: but that's a great point. There is no Italy at that point. Can you say I belong to something that does not exist? Even in theory, there was no even theory.
2: It was almost— But, uh, well, no, but wait, but wait. You're, you're saying that the wines of California, because the border passed over California, should be considered the first American wines. Then why, when the border passed over Tuscany, should Mazzei not be considered an Italian political philosopher? The same argument.
1: Uh, yes. If, if you want to say that the, the current Italian nation state has inherited the histories of its disparate parts into one amalgamated national identity and one amalgamated national patrimony, sure, I agree 100%. But I feel that their contributions was not like a. The, the English contributions are different because the, there was a lot of English people, British people, who were the, the kerosene that was thrown on the American Revolution. There was a lot of French thought that went into the American Revolution. But really, our Italian thought is limited to like two people. I don't feel that we had a bit, and because I think that, and it's not to be, not to go into shtick, but Italians are worried about lunch, the zucchini growing in the yard. You know about their kids. We're not. We're, we're not a country that got involved in other people's
2: business. No, I think that's wrong. I think you're wrong. I think that the Italian contribution to the philosophical underpinnings of political science around this idea of the Enlightenment, which you could say the American Revolution is born out of, I would say that the Italian underpinnings are there, spread throughout the contributions of other nations because there was no Italian nation. And so many of these guys were prolific writers, prolific contributors to this philosophy but without the credit of any kind of national backing you know it, it's like hold on being, i got
1: to digest that say that last part again
2: i'm saying that many of these figures their writings were referenced all over europe and the and the nascent united states by other thinkers and philosophers but because they have no national cause championing them or no national cause to champion themselves they're oftentimes the sort of unsung work cited behind a lot of this stuff because you know the the french have the uh, size and scope of a national academy if you will as do the british and the idea of celebrating their own philosophers and celebrating their own contributions to political philosophy is is to the benefit of the nation state and the italian contributions which are some of the earliest and most important don't get that scale because The thinkers and speakers and writers of other countries use and reference their stuff, and then go. It's a lot like you know. It's only Kennedy that finally starts to talk about Matzei's contribution in his book, "A Nation of Immigrants," where he goes on to say, "All men created." Great doctrine of all men created equal. But then
1: again, that's my concern. Of now, you have to say, okay, well, uh, America is a mosaic of many different people, and now we have to have you know contributes to the American Revolution. You have Admiral Barry; he's Irish. He starts the Navy. And you have Kaz he's a Polish general, and you have Lafayette, he's a French uh, general, and you have uh, von Schluven, he's a German general. And we didn't have any Italians in the battlefield, so now we put Marseille. Which isn't, which isn't a negative, but which is, oh, we're, we're, a, we're all these different countries, we came together, and we even had a, we even had a contribution to this, even in colonial time.
2: No, but I, well, I'm going to disagree with you further, because we did have contributions in the battlefield, but because there was no Italy… To champion. But did that. we? I mean, and, I don't know. If, yeah, if, of course. Yeah, we well, did. We but had. What was the great Italian
1: general of the American Revolution?
2: Well, we, unfortunately, we didn't have a great Italian general, but we did have contributions on the battlefield. There was two regiments formed in 1799 of Italian recruits that fought for the American cause. Uh, 473 men from Piedmont, uh, another thousand plus men uh, from a place called Duperche, which I, I guess is in uh, Savoy part of Piedmont. You know, we, we had soldiers fighting on the ground for American independence, not a significant general, but, but those significant generals in most cases came over because of the relationship between their home nation and the revolutionary colonies. So I, I think it's it's the lack of an Italian state on the national stage that leads to a lot of our contributions going unsung. I think the world looks at the American Revolution through the paradigm of nation state and this great political game being played out around the European world. And because we weren't there at the table, these individuals who contributed and sometimes significantly get overlooked. That That's, that's how I feel.
1: Do you, do you know, I'm here thinking to myself, do you know what my big beef is? Because I often feel that the American Revolution is coupled to the French Revolution, and we try to separate them, and we don't see them in their totality. My theory is that the american revolution worked and the french revolution didn't work because the americans were already used to, to governing themselves so it was v- a very easy transition france was an absolute disaster yeah so had the american revolution gone to tuscany right would their re- end result have been like america or would their end result have been like france i mean listen if you want to take the romans in my opinion yes the romans and the greek were the great inspiration the roman republic was the great inspiration. Greek city-states, great inspiration for the founders, 100%. Our architecture in in Washington all harkens back to the ancient Greeks and the Romans. We use the word senate, right? How much more senatus? How much more of a Roman word can you use? Now, that goes back to your theory. I guess if you say that the Roman Republic is a patrimony of Italy, sure, if you want to work that in and say, okay, part of Italy's patrimony is Rome, then 100%. The Italian contribution is paramount even paramount because i would say it overrides the enlightenment because there is no enlightenment but for the for the romans and the greeks in my opinion um and i think also you know not the south of italy because the south of italy was many things democratic it was not now if you look at venice now venice is a great example right because venice was a republic had napoleon not invaded venice would venice have survived the italian unification yeah, that's a great question, and because the Venetians had, a, I mean, well, a thousand years with the Doge system. Yeah, um, almost exactly. Yeah, and my point is that Venice was a functioning republic, and you had the Italian city states. But were they real republics, or were they oligarchies? Were they just basically a bundling of powerful families in the city states by intrigue and intermarriage and basically chess play and everything else? Sure, were able to manage their little town, you know.
2: Uh, no, I mean, look, th- this is an important conversation to have, right, because we're having a similar conversation on a national scale about what the country is, what's at its foundation, what are its values, how does it exercise those values, and there's a difference between a democracy and a republic sometimes, and I don't think people see that. I mean, you know, the idea of a republican system like Venice, like you said, Venice is as much an oligarchy as it is a republic. It's not a democracy. It's it's a democracy in that it's ruled by the decisions after consultation of a small cast of citizens, much like you know, you had in uh, in many parts of Europe at the time, but a true democratic republic where one voice, one vote, uh, I, I think that that's unique to the United States. And of course, again, the enfranchisement of one voice, one vote, at least on paper, doesn't happen until the 19th Amendment in 1920, when women have the right to vote. So this is a continuous experiment, you know, and I think, for me, I'm very proud of the fact that there is an Italian from Tuscany at the heart of the most important sentence in the country
1: you but you also have tuscan in
2: the family <laughs> so i married a tuscan yeah yes, you know that's why true. Uh, that's right how, did, did. how did he be
1: a neapolitan <laughs> i might
0: have i'm trying to like imagine his interactions with like the rest of the founding fathers and i don't know why but it's like bringing me back to this episode of the sopranos where tony like went golfing at like a country club where they were asking him all these like Italian people questions like do you guys do this and do you guys do that and and it was like he felt like offended and I, I thought it brought forth a certain kind of issue that Italian Americans deal with a lot that people kind of don't give a lot of value to. So I imagine what, did he have like similar things Did like Thomas Jefferson ask him, you know, so what's it like being Italian or, you know, so you have sauce every Sunday. But he was a There's Tuscan. No. So we know we didn't. <laughs> right. And that would have, that would have bothered him even more because it, it would have been like, no, I'm Tuscan.
2: <laughs> We're more like you people. Did I ever tell you the story about the guy who asked me if my family was in the olive oil business?
1: Yes, I remember
2: that. You were with me. I was in. Uh, I was in line to go into church for an event in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and this guy from Texas was there, and he was saying he was from this town in Texas, and I said, "Oh, I know that town very well." As a matter of fact, and he said, "Really?" And I said, "Yeah, my family does some business there." And he said, "And what business is your family in? Olive oil?" And I said to myself, uh- "I got to turn around because <laughs> I'm going to slug this guy as we walk into the cathedral with the cardinal opening the doors of the Jubilee year, whatever it was, Year of Mercy." And I said, I I to end up hitting this guy, so uh, I'm sure Matze probably got some of that. But Pat's right; he was a Tuscan, so he wasn't eating sauce on Sunday.
1: No, but 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 you know, another thing too is that they didn't have Italian peasants. I mean, people people were purchasing us because our agrarian ancestors came to America. Yeah, he came as an upper class Tuscan. Sure. Yeah. So Absolutely. they weren't there, you know, you know, Philippe, you make a corvette on Sunday. I don't think that was, and I. I Bro, I don't I think he spoke Malay, so I'm not gonna ask you to say that in Malay, but <laughs> Yeah, you no, know, I, I
0: doubt I, but okay, no no no. I know he was an upper class Italian, but I just doubt that they treated him, you know, like like they would a freshman. Oh, I think they did absolutely. Or, I don't think I don't think I don't know.
1: Remember that the first first Italians who came to the US before the American Civil War, there was an anti Catholic purchase, but there wasn't really an anti Italian purchase. Then we came with Schatol under our arms and Brooklyn up and 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 God, you know, we came as it with the
2: big branches, and all of a
1: sudden, Luigi <laughs> and Juan and all start yeah. coming off the boat, Maria Gugnet, and everybody. And that's when they get into a panic over us. That's when it comes. I, you know why I go off on this stuff? Because the last couple of years, I've been very contemplative about the diff- the difference between the American Revolutionary World and the French Revolution. And I think as the world transitioned from absolute monarchies. There's two roads because, really, the Russian Revolution is the child of the French Revolution. Sure. You know, and my thing is that, like, you know, had we not had the American Revolution, what would we be today? We would be Canada. Yeah. We'd all be Canada. True. All right? Yeah. And the narrative of Canadian nationhood is a gradual step toward autonomy, right? So they celebrate Canada Day, which is July 1st, 1868, when the British North America Act comes into effect, right? They didn't fire one shot. They didn't tear down a, a statue of Queen Victoria. There was no, there was no riding. They were granted home, basically what, what would be the British equivalent of home rule. And they go, thank you, thank you. Oh, oh you know, loyalism, which is so much part <laughs> of the Canadian character. Thank you, our oh, beloved monarch, Elizabeth. I'm sorry, Victoria, for granting us home rule. Sure. They were British subjects
2: to 1931. Sure, Australia, New Zealand, the same thing. Right, right.
1: So they never fought a war for autonomy, and we did because we said that it's 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 worth. Think about this. This is why I get all think about this. We said that a form of government that removing the British system was worth bloodshed. Right now, we we think about that. We digest that, and it's I've no one is more pro. I mean, we have a beautiful story. We really do. I mean, the romance of the American Revolution is definitely there. I mean. It's movies come out of it and plays come out. of it. I mean, there's Hamilton and the Patriot and no one's writing a, a musical about Canada. Right. I mean, do <laughs> you ever see the great Canadian uh, independence movie? The great, what Canada brings, I mean, you see Anna Green Gables, right? They're all in the yeah. sled. They're all going to go vote. Right. That's, <laughs> there's no romance coming out of Canadian independence, but there's no bloodshed either.
2: Yeah it's it's it made even more interesting by the fact that at the end of the revolution when Washington becomes president and they're still in the conversations deciding what this system looks like where the capital will be and it you know, uh there are many in power who recommend to Washington that he simply be declared a king and uh you know allow his family he's got two adopted kids at that point from his wife Martha uh, allow their family to serve like you say almost like the kind of like the role of the Doge of Venice, but but hereditary uh, and Washington turns down the offer and and steps down from the presidency after two terms, which is again an amazing and unprecedented transfer of power willingly and it 's fascinating to me that we 're you know talking about this upheaval to replace a system that, in our popular retelling is 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 painted as tyrannical when in reality. We were one man's decision away from returning basically to the same system, except uh, governed out of, you know, whatever capital we would have assumed, we would have decided, which probably would have been Virginia, uh, as opposed to London. So it is, it's very nuanced.
1: My concern is I always keep going back to the fact that a lot of the people who stood on the sidelines, the are their petri dish experiment flowers to an extent in Virginia, because remember something, you know, uh, enslaved people still did not have rights Religious minorities, Catholics still had impediments on their rights. Women. Native people, you know, the Trail of Tears were expelled. So it's it's nuanced, right? That's our one category. But secondly, yes, it's 100% revolutionary. It was absolutely stunning to say that all men were created equal, even if your concept was white Anglo-Saxon landowning Protestants. It still was a, a revolutionary concept. But tipping the boat of the old order gives you the United States which becomes kind of the, the which incrementally um, begins to fulfill what it said theoretically in 1776. All men created equal is a theory in 1776. And progressively the U.S. does more actions to put that into practice the way we perceive it, today, not the way they perceived it then. They perceived it then was perfect just the way they did it. But there's also, to me, a lack of accountability for the toppling over of the apple cart when in America it works out, but in France it doesn't. And a lot yeah. of the problems we have today go back to the French Revolution.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I I, I think that, I mean, th- this is the kind of discussion about history that we should be having, right? A, a sophisticated, I hope, I'm as close as the three of us can get the sophisticated and patient back and forth around the goods and bads that come out of history. And, you know, it's one thing to teach history to grade school kids in a simple way, but as you mature and Uh, go out into the world and realize that that history directly impacts our lives as a society, you have to have these kind of conversations. What are the benefits and what are the ills that are born out of these great moments in history? And I just feel a little different about it now, looking back and thinking there were were Italians involved than I did before when I didn't know it. So I guess that's what I really wanted to accomplish today. I mean, we can go into much detail about... The, you know, people like uh, Francesco Vigo, who came to the U.S. Uh, as a Spanish soldier during the war and helped establish St. Louis and uh, was a contributor through both funds and supplies and, and really like almost like a, a banker to the revolution as it crossed over the Appalachians and into the Western territories there. His contributions are considerable to, to, to making sure that this war is is financed and supplied. You could talk about William Paca, who signs the Declaration of Independence as a representative of Maryland at the Continental Congress. So I just think finding these things out over time, I don't know, for me it's like a little kind of history treat and a little umbilical tie of belonging to something that I think, you know, this is the conversation we're having, right? You keep talking about um, what belongs to the successor state, and I always think about when we talk about immigration in this country, many Mexican-Americans who say, We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. And, you know, history is sloppy. And who does our history belong to? You know, we, we who came later, I like the idea of having some connection to it, even if it's a stretch, even if it's a Tuscan, like you said, I married one. So I guess I have more, i credit than I, than I thought I did come (laughs) into the conversation. But, you know, I like feeling like there's a part of me in the entirety of the story. Somehow. I, I think it, makes you feel belonging if you uh, and i
1: think uh, i i think i may cope with the fact if we incorporate caesar rodney william paca there was an italian presence amongst the founders which were people of mixed italian heritage who came from religious refugees protestants who had come to to the united states right right but they were very much amalgamated into america at that point matze is an italian right so yes. you might call Caesar, Rodney, and Packer the first Italian-Americans. They were people of Italian descent living in a very Anglo-Saxon states like Delaware and Maryland and Virginia.
2: Right. right? Pacca was only half Italian. He was born in the United States. Right. Rodney was born in the United States. I don't, even, I don't know how much so, Italian ancestry Rodney even had. So
1: if you take Matze, Matze is, is truly an Italian. Again, when I get back to the Italian perspective, the Italian perspective to me is Italians are practical. That's one of the hallmarks of it, right? They might bend the rules and disobey the rules and be naughty when they don't see something dangerous. But when they saw something dangerous, the coronavirus, everybody kind of did what they were supposed to do. My mentality is that kind of concept of practicality is did the American enlightenment-inspired revolution with contribution to people like Matsei, isn't it a one-size-fits-all way to go? So, you know, oh. so some, well, yeah. some countries... It's not the right fit for that. We never had that discussion. Is, yeah,
2: it. no, we never have that discussion about any system. Is is there? There is no one. I I can't imagine there is a one size fits all government that works for every every nation. And this is fast becoming a significant issue as we move away from the concept of nation state into a globalized world. And and what systems work and and where they work. I mean, this is not one size fits all. I don't
1: know. I just think that. It's all complicated. I think that we, we we look at American history in very black and white terms. No, you're right.
2: You're right. We we discuss American history in black and white terms, and now more than ever, people have to be comfortable discussing it in the gray. So on the eve for us as we record, Rosella's uh, birthday. Of Rosella's birthday And the birth of the nation America
1: chose to be born On Rosella's birthday Remember <laughs>
2: The real holiday Yeah
0: pretty soon It's it's gonna be only Rosella's birthday Can I, can I
1: ask <laughs> you a <right>. question <laughs> about,
0: talk about that. How do you
1: think Your birthday was different As a kid Because you shared it With the 4th of July Everybody had Oh that. it's
0: terrible Oh it's freaking horrible Nobody
1: pays attention <laughs> so,
0: It's awful everybody
1: had Offer your birthday
0: it's, it's terrible To be born on a holiday It's not fun
2: Nah It's gotta suck It does If you could have
1: picked a day to be born, when would it have been?
0: Tuesday, September 20th. September would have been a better time of year? Uh, Just any other day where it's like a normal day and whoever cares about your birthday only cares about your birthday. Nobody only cares that it's your birthday on the 4th of July. They all have something better to do.
2: They got something better. Any party invitation you send out sucks because they got something better to do. (laughs)
0: I can never do it on my birthday. It's gotta be the, the weekend before the weekend. If it falls on a weekend, then it's like two weeks later. You're
2: like, you know did you guys hear that they changed the star sign? Speaking of changing your birthday, a, they added a NASA, I think, added a new star sign and the whole calendar got changed. Oh, come on. I swear. Oh, I read this thing online and somebody was complaining. And yeah, now they got to sell
1: new me. books and new keychains. Yeah, it's there. all the way. Yeah, new. Books. Yeah, I could go
2: thousands yeah. of years. I, people got tattoos of this stuff, and now all of a sudden it changed. Yeah, you know. can't
0: do that to people. That's wrong. This is the of the age.
2: I'm still a Leo, though, by the way. I'm the only one I know that that stayed what I am, what I was.
0: I, I don't know what the hell I am anymore, and now I now I know that this is a lie.
2: I mean, now when, I know. when they killed uh, Pluto as a planet, I was down. But when they start changing this stuff, you're just messing with people's lives.
0: Yeah, it's uh, who who can stand for that? <laughs> no. uh, I, you know, it's like they tell us to believe in all this crap. It's not true.
2: <laughs> and then they change it. It's like, sorry, yeah. folks, you've been reading the Daily New York Post uh, for 25, 30 years looking into this thing and all of a sudden we're going to pull the rug out from under you. I don't know. Oh,
0: you're a cancer. You're super sensitive. And I'm like, and and, and I'm like, no, I'm just Italian and I
2: hold a grudge. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I believe, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of like a Pat. What are you? Capricorn. Capricorn. Oh yeah. You're like Nicole, but I, well, no, I don't, yeah. I don't know anymore now. Cause that changed. Uh, she changed.
1: They could change. I ain't changed. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't buy well, do into that, to... but I ain't gonna. No,
2: but it's still interesting. If I am what I am. That's exactly right. Well, I have really enjoyed having this conversation on the eve of the 4th of July as we record, and I hope everybody enjoys listening to it a few days after. And I think it's really amazing that next week we're going to go from this very, I think, thoughtful and intense conversation about politics and society and the founding of this country. And next week we're going to talk about Italian-Americans and baseball. So going from one extreme to very light, I think, which is going to be another great conversation that I'm looking forward to because – Major League Baseball has announced they're coming back, so I'm looking forward to having that conversation and getting the return of my favorite sport.
1: I, I just w- I want to go on record as saying that this entire process I have protested. This being known as the Fourth of July episode, this in all justice should be known as the Rosella Birthdays e- episode. <laughs> <And> tomorrow,
2: <laughs> tomorrow,
1: we can, I celebrate.
0: We can do an episode on like on on the trauma that has been you know celebrating my birthday on a holiday. Uh, on on what thirty three years of that does to does to someone?
2: Why don't you guys do another one of Pat's special bonus episodes on that? That'd be a great release.
0: I actually like up until a few years ago, I would have like a uh, birthday depression. Ah, it's a thing.
2: Oh yeah, sure. And I
0: think my mother must have had it too, because I don't know what, I mean, she never listens, so this is safe, but she would go completely insane a few days before my birthday and and just be every Italian mother's worst nightmare. It would be like a werewolf kind of thing where she would just turn into like the Italian mom werewolf and just be like, just insane and bring up every grudge and every bad thing every relative has ever done and talk about it. And like, and that didn't help.
2: Well, the older I get, the more I have birthday depression. I could tell you that much.
0: Yeah. I don't like my birthday. Like my, my husband likes my birthday. He doesn't like his birthday, but he likes my birthday. He wants to celebrate my birthday for me.
2: <laughs> That's Yeah. <not laughs> he thing.
0: forces me to celebrate my birthday. And it's like, I don't, I don't really feel like doing this.
2: No, I'm not a big birthday celebrator either. This doesn't, doesn't do it for me, but Needless to say, Pat's right. We definitely should be titling, subtitling at least this episode. Happy birthday, Row! And uh, while we're all in quarantine and separated and not going to get to see each other tomorrow, I hope uh, at least we get to connect and say happy birthday because uh,
1: God bless America. God
2: bless, God America. bless America. Yes, yes yeah.
0: God bless America.
2: And I'm going to leave us on this episode with a special song because the one Italian contribution we did not talk about that if like many of us you went to the university of lumanti you would know that uh the greatest italian contribution is that paul revere's horse was italian that
0: was his real name
2: uh no i, I only i well, we haven't proven it yet lumanti would know but oh. uh... <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was the real name <laughs>
2: that was a good close by the birthday girl so from all of us the italian american podcast Happy birthday, bro. Happy, happy 4th of July. We hope you had a great one. And uh, here's a little history lesson on Paul Revere's horse. Oh, I say there was
1: Paul Revere Italian. No, but his horse was. You have heard of Paul Revere, of course. But nobody seems to know a thing about his horse. His name was Bacigalupa, and he came from Italy. He was nuts about Italian wine, what a crazy horse was he Hey, get up, a bunch of Paul Revere Get up, a bunch of galloots, the British are near. Put down that jug of cherry wine and please get out of bed I just looked out the window and all the coats I see are red Bacchigallo, a bunch of galloots, a and- bunch of began